Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, tax and remote work. In March 2020, as the world shut down and many companies switched to fully remote work, few were thinking about the tax consequences of all these new teleworking employees. But as the pandemic dragged on, many states put into place temporary tax laws, establishing that remote employees would be subject to taxes in the state of their employer. Similar to the convenience of the employer rules, which are a policy that's been around for some time in states like New York and Pennsylvania. Now, two years later, many companies continue to offer a remote option for their employees. Yet those temporarily enacted pandemic rules are ending, causing many to wonder about the future of tax policy for remote workers. Tax Notes state reporter Paul Jones will talk more about this in just a minute. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes federal author Doug Borg discussing an article he co-authored on the U.S. tax exemption for residents of Puerto Rico. But first, Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, David. It's great to be back. Now, Paul, I understand you're one of our fully remote reporters. Where are you based and are you affected by a convenience rule? Yeah, unlike most of the Tax Notes crew who are based out of Virginia, I actually work out of sunny California all year. Now, Virginia doesn't have a convenience of the employer rule, and that means that my income is taxed only by California where I work. Of course, notably, California also doesn't have a convenience of the employer rule yet anyway. So I understand you recently talked with someone about these rules. Uh, Could you tell us about your guest and what you talked about? Sure. Our guest expert is Timothy Noonan. He's a partner in the New York office of Hodgson Russ LLP. And he spoke with me recently about the controversy over states' longstanding convenience rules and also about the potential fallout from these similar temporary withholding rules that a lot of states adopted during the pandemic. All right, let's go to that interview. So thanks for joining us, Tim. Happy to be here. Thanks, Paul. As we know, convenience of the employer rules have been around for a while. I think there's roughly five states that impose them, depending sort of on how you you count which states have a a rule. During the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, there was an increased sort of focus on people working outside of their usual areas, including across state lines. And there was sort of an increased attention focused on convenience of the employer rules, And before we sort of jump into that, can you give us a quick review of these rules, sort of where they came from, what their original purpose was, and how they've evolved since? And also, what are some of the challenges they pose? Why have these been controversial over the years? Sure. You know, Paul, the convenience rule was historically just built into the tax law, again, just of of a handful of states, New York, pretty much being the most notable because the issues seem to arise most in the New York courts and in New York tax audits. And, you know, the the genesis originally was really one of around tax avoidance or, or curbing tax avoidance. You know, states like New York didn't want taxpayers who lived in a border state like New Jersey or Connecticut to get some sort of tax benefit by simply not going to work, right? If, if the employee could save a couple percentage points in income tax by staying home instead of commuting into work on on, on a particular day, you know, that to the New York legislators and tax department folks seemed like an unfair advantage to people who just lived in New York and commuted to New York from their house down the street. So that was the initial rationale behind these rules. And like I said, there wasn't lots of action in this in states outside of New York, in, in large part, 
in New York, this became a, a hot button issue, in part because, of course, the New York being a financial center, a commercial center, and being right on the border of a couple other states, and in part because New York took a pretty broad interpretation of what it meant to be or what the convenience of the employer rule really meant. And the convenience of the employer rule basically says that if you're working from home for your own convenience and not out of any employer necessity, the state's going to treat that day as a day worked in New York. So New York cases started to come out and New York was taking a very broad interpretation of what was a convenience day. And then they extended this in some other cases beyond just local telecommuters to people who were working remotely from across the country. Um, so that sort of is led to the genesis. All, all this, of course, is pre-COVID. And, and look, but even pre-COVID, the challenge was the inconsistency in the rules because only a handful of states had these rules and, and the states right immediately around New York, like New Jersey, Connecticut, Vermont, um, didn't have these rules. The big problem a lot of times was double taxation, right? And that was actually the case in Connecticut for years, that Connecticut didn't have a convenience rule historically. So if we had a telecommuter that paid tax in New York, Connecticut wasn't giving their their residents a credit for that. So that caused lots of challenges for employers and employees and, and led to a lot of the old controversy. This ended up getting fixed by Connecticut in 2019, pre-COVID, um, but it still could have come up in a lot of states. So um, that historically, again, pre-COVID, before everyone started telecommuting much more, um, there already was brewing controversy. It just was pretty limited to sort of New York and environs because most states didn't have the rules and telecommuting wasn't as prevalent. Right. So now let's talk about some of the challenges that have come up, because obviously these rules are asserting the right of the state to tax someone who's working outside of their jurisdiction. And so there have been some legal challenges. We've had a lot of people sort of speculate or, or assert that these rules could or do run afoul of the U.S. Constitution. But the challenges to these rules on those grounds have not been successful. Can we discuss a couple of those in particular? Obviously, we're going to talk about the Zelensky and Huckabee cases in New York. Sure. And those cases are, you know, 15 or 20 years old at this point. But both of those taxpayers brought, as you said, constitutional challenges to New York's convenience rule on a couple of different grounds. One sort of on a Commerce Clause ground that there was double taxation. Clearly, that was the issue with Professor Zelinsky, who lived in Connecticut and was subject to the double taxation issue I mentioned a minute or so ago. Mr. Huckabee didn't live nearby New York. He lived down in Tennessee, but was a remote worker for a software company. His challenge wasn't really based on double taxation because there's no income tax in Tennessee, but on more of like a due process type ground that it just didn't seem right that constitutionally New York was able to you know, use its long arms to tax someone who was working in another state like that. Well, again, both of those taxpayers lost. Those cases went to the Court of Appeals in New York, which is New York's highest court. The Supreme Court uh, denied taking either appeal. So, I mean, it, it's sort of been the law of the land in New York for at least the past 15 years or so. And there was also around this time period, lots of other litigation in New York's administrative courts um, in, in New York's Division of Tax Appeals, where taxpayers were, you know, trying to defend themselves against some pretty aggressive positions taken by the New York tax department 
on this convenience rule. There were some cases where an employer closed a taxpayer's, well, didn't close their office, but where, where a, an employer asked the taxpayer to work at home because they didn't have enough space for them in their office. Or they asked the taxpayer to work at home because their job was of a confidential nature and they didn't really feel like they had the privacy systems in place at the office to sort of protect client information or whatever. In cases like that, taxpayers kept losing, right? The courts were saying, well, look, the work that this employee is doing is of the nature that it could have been done in New York. So even though their employer asked them to, to stay at home, we still think that it's a convenience day. And again, that seems to throw the whole concept of a conven- the convenience rule on its head. The convenience rule says that if, if you're working from home for your own convenience and not for employer necessity, then that's treated as a New York workday. A lot of these cases seem to employ a much broader interpretation. Um, again, the idea being if that the work was of the nature that it could have been done in New York, well, then New York should be able to tax it even if the work was done at home. So in addition to the constitutional, to the constitutional issues that we saw come up in, in Huckabee and Zelensky, sort of denying taxpayers really the ability to make a constitutional claim, these other administrative cases, you know, really made it difficult on, on the legal issue for taxpayers to win. It just New York was taking a real broad interpretation of the rules and they were winning. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Empower staff with tax automation software that is transforming the accounting profession. The SafeSend suite improves your firm's processes, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, the SafeSend suite makes it easy. Clients love the intuitive, consistent experience at every step of the tax engagement. Staff love reducing the time they spend on manual labor-intensive tasks. Schedule a demo at SafeSend.com to see it in action. That's SafeSend.com. So we, we've sort of came to almost, I guess you could say, maybe a homeostasis. And then COVID-19 hits and you have lockdowns in an attempt to control the spread of the virus. And people start working from home, including out of state. And a whole bunch of states come under pressure to issue tax rules to address withholding, nexus, et cetera. And the reason you know, we're talking about this is that some of the rules by these states, I think most notably Massachusetts, but some others as well, kind of function like a convenience rule. They don't specifically state you know, that if you're working from home for convenience in a different state, then they're still going to tax your income. Rather, I think in some instances, to both protect their revenue and for purposes of, of simplicity for employers, they said, if a person normally works in this location in our state, keep withholding for them. Of course, this isn't universal. States all had different variations, but they established all of these rules that kind of asserted this right to tax someone who was no longer doing work in that state. And these were temporary rules, but presumably they're going to be audits of workers for this period that come up and they may be appealed and potentially even litigated. And I'm sort of curious uh, leaving aside the sort of larger constitutional questions, et cetera, about convenience rules, you know, do you think that some of these pandemic era rules, if they are challenged, are going to stand up or are there going to be issues like, you know, whether there was statutory authority for a tax department to issue this rule without new legislation to enable it? Yes, I do expect there to be litigation. And in part, you know, what's interesting is of the, I don't know, 30 or so states who came out with some, you know, pandemic level guidance, 
on this issue, it was not at all uniform. A number of states didn't employ something like a convenience rule. A number of states said, you know what, if you're physically working in our state, well, that's a work day in our state. We don't care that you're working, you know, uh, remotely for your employer who is, might be in uh, New York or Connecticut or California. Um, so you had uh, not only states coming out with kind of this emergency guidance, but you had it, you know, being different. I mean, I think at one point we, we were tracking it closely. 16 states had said use a convenience type rule and uh, 15 states said, no, we're going to use a physical presence rule. So I think, you know, on the sort of constitutional basis you know, again, the Massachusetts already, you know, won its its uh, dispute with New Hampshire, or at least the Supreme Court refused to take their case. Um, you know, whether or not other taxpayers can make a constitutional claim against a state who put in one of these emergency rules, that's open to question. I'm not sure, but the issue around whether or not the the tax departments were even authorized to issue these emergency rulings, I think is a really good one. You know, it just reminds me of the airport mask mandate that, you know, got got thrown out. I mean, these these all these mandates are getting thrown out, not based on, you know, testimony by by doctors. They're being thrown out because the administrative agencies in the federal government or the states just didn't have the power to do it. So um, you definitely could see that as an avenue for taxpayers to challenge some of these rules. Yeah, you know, another thing about the pandemic era that I think is sort of interesting is, of course, you know, some of these states, uh, most of these states were coming out with these rules kind of ad hoc to try and address the situation. But of course, you also have states like New York, which, you know, has just a an on the books convenience rule. And I believe that New York is either auditing or is expected to audit workers during the 2020 year, the 2021 tax year, et cetera and will presumably apply its convenience rule in places it thinks that it should apply. And in a situation where someone is working out of state because of concern about COVID or because their employer is concerned about COVID or even in response to a lockdown order, if a state's trying to impose its taxation on that person for working out of state under their convenience rule, does the context of the pandemic and the desire of people to avoid infection, et cetera, cut into the state's ability to argue that working remotely is from convenience? Well, I mean, New York doesn't think so. Shortly, you know, after sort of all these lockdowns started, New York issued some guidance on their website that basically said status quo, that even if you're working remotely as a result of a lockdown or your employer asking you to work from home, that it didn't matter, the normal convenience rules still apply. Now, whether that holds up is another story. And I'll tell you, Paul, you know, you mentioned auditing by New York. New York did something pretty I guess, remarkable or, or unusual last year. Uh, it, and it continues. Um, lots of taxpayers who filed their taxes in April or May of 2021 for the 2020 tax year or in October of 2021 for the 2020 tax year, they got an audit notice right away. Like in some cases, like the next day, immediately issued. Now, these weren't the typical residency audits or field field audits that we see um, on a regular basis that New York State runs. These were more what we call desk audits, meaning it was just almost like a computer-generated notice issued to a taxpayer immediately after filing, right? A normal audit would come a year or so uh, after someone files a tax return. These desk audits were coming a week or so after the tax return was being filed. They were all the same. Uh, it was the same letter. 
and it was sort of indiscriminate. It was, I saw one where a, a taxpayer reported $10,000 of income and got one of these notices and some who reported $10 million of income and got one of these notices. Um, so they came out with this program, all asking questions around the convenience rule. And yeah, the, the issue that we're, we're going to face is that does the, the context of the argument change when someone's working from home as a result of a government order? let's say, right? If the government shut down the office and said everyone had to work from home, how could New York sustain a position that that was a convenience day, right? It seems awfully inconvenient. And it definitely seems like someone's working from home in that situation based on necessity. You know, similarly, even after a lot of these government mandated shutdowns went away, you know, later in the spring or summer of 2020, lots of employers, particularly in New York City, said, you know what? why don't we just stay closed? It seems to be working. You know, people are still concerned. So don't come in, right? So now you have the employer, lots of companies just lock their doors, right? No one could come in. Some, maybe most companies made it optional, but most people were told to stay home. So that that raises or adds a wrinkle to the whole convenience rule analysis, right? Many of the states who put in these temporary rules, as you mentioned, Paul, didn't really like use the convenient tag, right? They didn't use the convenience tag. They just said, look, if you used to work in a state, in our state, and then the lockdown happened and you're, you're working remotely somewhere else, eh, we're going to treat that as a, as a day worked in our state, right? That was the Massachusetts rule. But New York is sort of, you know, married to its convenience rule concept. And I think, you know, to, to your direct question, there's just a different analysis that couldn't be applied here, right? If you, if you have a government shutting down your office, you have your employer shutting down your office. The taxpayer, I think, in that case, has a really good argument that this isn't a convenience day whatsoever. This is a necessity day. I was working from my home in New Jersey or, or my you know, parents' basement in Florida. Uh, I was doing that out of necessity. I couldn't go in the office for crying out loud. You know, So that, that definitely is going to add a wrinkle to the legal arguments here for sure. Let's move forward, though, because you know that's that's sort of the fallout from this particular period of time, and and in many instances, you know, sort of unique circumstances where people were working from home because right they're concerned about the virus or their employers trying to to deal with the fallout from this this pandemic and all of these countermeasures being taken to control the spread of it. But we've also seen now that we have you know higher rates of vaccination and lower rates of hospitalizations something resembling sort of a return to, if not normalcy, at least an acceptance of a sort of endemic phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as that has happened, what people are observing is that there is apparently sort of, there has been an acceleration of what was kind of a pre-existing trend towards increased telecommuting. It seems to have increased significantly and sort of on a permanent basis. And so we're probably going to see more and more people, particularly those whose work model allows them to work from home, telecommuting either most of the time, all of the time, or at least part of the time with these sort of flexible work rules that some employers are allowing. And as a result of that, it's interesting to sort of take a look at how that could affect convenience rules. But I think one of the first questions is, is that going to put an onus on states like New York to increase their enforcement of convenience rules? And also, are other states, you know, going to be looking potentially at enforcing or or even adopting convenience rules as a means of kind of protecting their tax base? Is is one of the reactions we might see to increase telecommuting going to be stricter enforcement of existing convenience rules? 
and more taxing authorities and legislatures looking at enforcing convenience rules or creating convenience rules so that they can go after uh, mobile workers. Yeah, I mean, certainly on the enforcement question, for sure, especially in a state like New York. I mean, New York really, you know, literally can't afford it, right? They can't afford losing the revenue from all of the folks who are now on a more regular telecommuting model, right? So absolutely. And look, that's already, as I mentioned, with the sort of new audit program in New York, that's already being played out, you know, uh, in 2020. And we've seen the same sort of immediate audits for 2021 taxes, right? It's April 27th. And I've already seen a bunch of these audits for 2021. So increased enforcement, definitely. The other question about, you know, again, we're now back to just a handful of states with convenience rules now that all the sort of temporary COVID rules have more or less gone away in these states. You know, do we think other states are going to adopt a, a convenience type rule or a telecommuting rule? And, you know, the, look, there's winners and losers. Like, you know, some states will benefit from, you know, a state like Colorado, right? That That's a state where maybe lots of people will, you know, or, or have gone to sort of hang out and work and work remotely. And they might not want a convenience rule, right? Because they might have a lot of New Yorkers who are, you know, just hanging out in a vacation home working. They, they'd like to tax those days, you know? So, but, you know, a state like California is a real good example because California is a physical presence state historically, meaning that if I work for a company in San Francisco, um, but they allow me to work remotely and I'm, you know, I'm a resident of some other state, then, you know, I don't have to pay California tax on my compensation because I'm not working in California. I mean, that could be a big problem for California, right? So I definitely think you'll have states, again, states that are so-called losers in that respect, um, like California, who are going to need to reevaluate their, their policies. And they're going to look to uh, establish a rule like New York's rule to make sure they don't lose that revenue. Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash taxnotes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. So there, there may be some larger fights on the horizon over this, but just for now, if you're a taxpayer or an, an employee or an employer, and you're in a state you know, that has a convenience rule, or maybe your state starts looking at adopting it, you know, what are some of the practical things that employees and employers should look to do to try and make sure that they have either minimal exposure to this, that they avoid double taxation, or maybe they just want to avoid being caught with a convenience rule at all, and they want to know sort of within the existing rule or rules, what, what are some of the things they can do to avoid them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is a, certainly a challenge 
for employers right now. I mean, there's there's a, a war for talent on, right? So it's tough to to get good people to to come work for you. And um, if you're in a state that has a, a convenience rule, um, like like New York, it might be hard to hire someone. You know, you don't care where the person lives. The, you're going to allow the employee to work remotely, and they might be coming from Tennessee, and there's no income tax there, and that employee is not going to want to take the job if it's going to mean you know eight percent of income tax on their compensation, right? So that's that's a challenge already for for employers. And then again, avoiding the potential for double taxation that could occur again if you have someone who lives in Colorado that has a physical presence rule, but is working, is, is telecommuting to New York. Um, again, there's double taxation concerns there too. You know, um, where there's a will, there's a way though. So we've, we've worked with uh, lots of clients to, to find ways uh, to, to manage this um, or, or frankly, to, to get around it. And, you know, one way is just to never come again, if we're speaking in the context of New York, to just not come to New York to work at all. Um, New York's convenience rule only applies to a taxpayer who is working sometimes in New York and sometimes not in New York. If you're a 100% telecommuter, like you literally don't come into New York at all for one day during the year, then under you know some longstanding case law in New York, the convenience rule doesn't apply, right? So um, really interesting there, but um, it's sort of an all or nothing thing. If you work for one day, then you're subject to it. But if you don't come in, um, then that convenience rule doesn't apply. Again, that's a, that's a New York specific rule, but certainly that's one, one, one way to manage that. Not always practical. You know, employers will want their employees to come in sometimes just to see people, you know, um, so, so that, you know, it may not be practical, but that's, that's one way to manage it. You know, there's another way to manage it. And that's really, you know, if there's an office in another state, you know, these convenience rules will generally apply if you're telecommuting to an office inside the convenience rule state, right? So if I'm if I move to Florida and I live in Florida, but I'm telecommuting to an office in New York, then the convenience rule applies. Well, look, but what if my my company opens up an office down the street in Miami, right? And now that office becomes my my office, and I go there, right? That that becomes my office. Well, okay, I'm not working from home anymore. I'm working in the Miami office, so the convenience rule doesn't apply. Great. Or what if my firm already has an office, you know, in Palm Beach? So I say, okay, guys, well, now I live in Miami. So can you, can you assign me to the Palm Beach office? And I'll, you know, I'll go there sometimes and, and that, that'll be my main office. So now when I'm telecommuting, I'm not telecommuting to New York, I'm telecommuting to the Palm Beach office, right? And, you know, we don't have to worry about New York's convenience rule then. So, you know, working on ways to um, get someone connected to a different office so now again, that we're if if there is if they're either working for in an office in another state, which is always fine, or they're telecommuting to an office in another state, which should be fine as well. I mean, that's something that companies can do, and we've 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 counseled a lot of a lot of our clients on setting up arrangements like that. You know, they're facts and circumstances type things. It's got to be a legit office assignment. You know, the the, the person has to go there at least sometimes, um, but it's a definite way around it. And then. So the last thing we've worked with companies on, and this goes back to one of my comments earlier about the safe harbor rules that have been put in place, again, in, in New York, to allow a home office work if that work is done out of what New York deems to be a bona fide office of the employer. 
Um, that requires us meeting a laundry list of factors. But if we can meet those factors, then you know, voila, we've 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 we fixed the issue. So we've we've worked with a lot of companies to set up that type of arrangement. They enter into uh, some sort of telecommuting agreement or telecommuting arrangement with their employee. And that gets us out of the problem. And if, if someone's moved to Florida, it means we don't have to pay any tax. If someone's moved to Colorado, it means we don't have to pay double tax. Um, but there's definitely uh, ways to, to manage this or, or get around it if you know, folks just take the time to figure it out. So one last question here. When, when we look at the rise of remote work, let's say that this continues to be an option that becomes more and more attractive to people working from home you know, as internet communications have gotten really good, as is a lot of work in the service economy has shifted to, you know, sort of desk work, computer work, et cetera, you know, we're going to have a, I think probably a, a larger constituency of remote workers than we've had in the past. And as that becomes the case, does that undermine the argument for these convenience rules in a way that maybe affects states sort of uh, within their their rulemaking or their legislative process. So, you know, we mentioned some states may, the winners and losers, there may be some states that have an incentive to try and protect their tax base. But it, I'm wondering if, if remote work might also cause people to just put pressure on states to say, look, this is not a convenience issue. Uh, and you can take a hard line on this, but we're going to avoid working in your state or even putting a toe across the border into your state if you're going to try and tax us like this. And that over time, it might just make the argument, because when we were talking about the genesis of these rules as a means of, of going after tax avoidance, it increasingly seems like these rules are moving in their application away from that towards just going after people who don't work at their employer's office in a given state, because that's just no longer a normal work model. Is there a potential that the sort of the justification uh, for these rules, the premise of these rules just becomes so weakened over time by the facts on the ground that it becomes harder and harder for states to, to sustain them? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think the premise that these, these convenience rules were designed as a way to, you know, uh, deter tax avoidance. I think that premise kind of died a long time ago, maybe with the Huckabee case in New York, where, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, avoiding New York tax by working over the border. He was thousands of miles away, you know, so um, it was just, you know, the, the premise basically wasn't that it's some sort of special accommodation that we need to curb the premise was states like New York thinking, hey, look, if you're working for a New York company and you're doing work that could be done in New York, you shouldn't get a special benefit because your employer allows you to work from home, whether that's across the river or whether that's across the country. Um, so I think what's with remote work becoming normal, it's, it's not that it undermines a premise that supports a convenience rule. I think what it does is it shines a light on the potential inequity of it, it shines a light on you know, different states having different rules that could lead to double taxation. It, you know, leads to podcasts like this where people are talking about it, right? So it spurs action. And when we're dealing with taxes, and of course, when we're dealing with tax lawyers, it leads to litigation, right? So, and that could upend the rule, um, which, you know, from the beginning is a little questionable, right? Like, you know, why should you be able to tax somebody in the state of New York, if they're not working in the state of New York, right? That always was kind of goofy. So I think what the return or the increase in these remote work arrangements does 
is it shines a light on an issue that's kind of unusual and that can be really unfair. Um, and that, I think, is what's going to spur a lot of action, a lot of litigation, a lot of discussion on this for you know many years to come. Well, thanks, Tim. It's, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I'm sure everyone appreciates your analysis on this issue. Awesome, Paul. Happy to participate. Thanks again. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief, Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Victoria Glover examines recent developments regarding partnership liabilities. Sonia Kathari and Louis Leho examine the potential federal tax treatment of non-fungible tokens. In Tax Note State, six KPMG practitioners consider why unilateral IRS rulemaking is obsolete. Billy Hamilton examines public financing of sports stadiums. In Tax Notes International, Robert Goulder examines the role of taxation in the recent French presidential elections. Alexandra Ball reviews new EU rules amending the VAT treatment of physical and virtual events. In Featured Analysis, Nana Amasarfo wonders if the SEC climate rule could help carbon taxation. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Paige. I'm here with Doug Borg, a manager in the Washington office of RSM US. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. We're here to discuss your Tax Notes Federal article titled Puerto Rico Resident Exemption to Be Focus of IRS Audit Campaign, which you co-authored with Ramon Camacho. Can you give us a brief overview of your article? Sure. And thanks again for having me. My article really discusses at a high level the income tax benefits of moving to Puerto Rico and how one qualifies for those benefits. Many of you may know that there is an income tax exemption for certain income earned in Puerto Rico by those taxpayers that qualify as what are called bona fide residents of Puerto Rico. Uh, In addition to that, there are several Puerto Rican tax incentives that when taken in combination with this U.S. income tax exemption can result in some people achieving a very low overall tax rate across the U.S. and Puerto Rico by moving their lives and their businesses to Puerto Rico. So we've seen a great deal of client interest in these benefits. The article also touches on a recent audit campaign that started in early of 2021. And in the IRS announcement of this audit campaign, two particular issues are the target of this campaign. One is the audit campaign will focus on those taxpayers that exclude income under these tax benefits, but do not qualify as bona fide residents of Puerto Rico. Additionally, the campaign will focus on those taxpayers that are bona fide residents of Puerto Rico, but who exclude and do not pay income tax on income that isn't covered by this U.S. income tax exemption. So the U.S. income tax exemption covers income that is earned in Puerto Rico, but it does not cover U.S. source income or other foreign source income. So this this article really looks at the qualification rules kind of through the lens of this audit campaign and 
really extrapolates on the two main issues of the campaign. What does it take to be a bona fide resident in Puerto Rico? And what is the extent of the exemption for those taxpayers that are bona fide residents of Puerto Rico? And I guess the two takeaways I would take from it is one that uh, residents in Puerto Rico is not simply elective. One has to really move their lives and their uh, business activities to Puerto Rico and even relinquish their contacts with the United States. And there are some pretty hard and fast uh, objective rules for establishing residence in Puerto Rico, but there are also some less objective rules that taxpayers must meet. And it creates a degree of uncertainty for those taxpayers that move to Puerto Rico, but uh, maintain significant contacts with the U.S. or continue to conduct a business in the U.S. after their move to Puerto Rico. And on the, the scope of the exemption, I would just say that moving to Puerto Rico is not a complete departure from the U.S. tax system. And uh, anyone thinking of moving to Puerto Rico should really understand this, that not all of their income may be covered by this exemption. And, and the article goes into some, some of the more interesting topics in this area. What I had in mind was the taxpayer, say a US resident uh, who has experienced a significant growth in uh, one or some of his assets, could be uh, a fund manager with a, a very large capital gain position, could be a Bitcoin holder, or it could be someone who just owns a business and they may be looking to dispose of those assets and escape U.S. taxation by, say, moving to Puerto Rico. And uh, looking at the source rules and, and what I discuss in the article is that moving to Puerto Rico will not eliminate income tax on assets held before the move to Puerto Rico in most cases. So taxpayers just really need to be mindful of, A, what does it take to be a resident in Puerto Rico, and uh, what is the scope of this income tax exemption? And hopefully, uh, this article will help uh, those practitioners that don't deal with this every day, but maybe seeing this topic come up to basically educate their clients or at least become familiar with the rules. And uh, I really hope it was helpful to all of you out there. Thanks. What prompted you to write about this topic? Yeah, I would say that through several lines of our business at RSM, we've just seen a lot of activity in Puerto Rico. And it's not just in the income tax side or the personal income tax side. Uh, we see it uh, with structuring projects, with the number of clients looking to either move their businesses to Puerto Rico. We've seen a number of clients go through transfer pricing exercises as part of moving their businesses to Puerto Rico. And Frequently, those projects result in questions about what happens to the owners of those businesses or what can they do. Uh, so we've just seen the topic of residents in Puerto Rico coming up and ways to take advantage of this income tax exemption in the U.S. side, but also on the Puerto Rican tax benefits side. So just it's really a hot area. And we've seen a lot of interest, not just from our clients, but also in the press. So we thought it'd be a great article to uh, touch on and uh, really educate our readership and our clients about the specifics. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? 
so you can email me. Uh, my email address is douglas.borg at rsmus.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So I'd be happy to field any questions or just to uh, get to know someone who may be dealing with similar issues. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Doug. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. You can find Doug and Ramon's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.